all of us have different stories, and we all come here this morning. Even as Marvin was praying, he was acknowledging the fact that we all come here from different points, right? For some of us, life right now feels very frustrating. Like we can't get any traction, we're not making any progress, like we're banging our head against the wall. For some of us, we're in a really good place, and it's just kind of like the everyday decisions of life, everything's tracking, our family's doing good, our kids are doing good, job's where it's supposed to be, that's great. Um, sometimes all of us are affected uh, by tragedies. You know, those, those tragedies that we see that affect us as, as a nation, those tragedies that we see that affect us as an area, and those ones that affect us personally. And we're, we struggle to think, what am I supposed to do with that? How, how am I supposed to respond to that? Even to the point where we're, where we're questioning what's, what's right and wrong anymore. And then, then there's like the pace of life. For those of us that have children who are involved in extracurriculars, that's just out of hand, the pace at which that stuff happens. And then there's our own schedules. And if you take it even a step farther, think about the pace of change, right? Whether it's, it's societal, cultural, technological, it, it's off the charts. We have gained more information, there's been more advancements in the last 50 years than there was in the you know, 2,000 years prior to that all, all added up. You guys, there's, a, there's this thing now, it's called CRISPR. CRISPR is one of these technological advancements. It's a high-tech gizmo that speeds up the process of gene splicing. So much so that there are scientists working on a process that, will, that is trying to take human DNA and splice it with that of a pig so that thing can be a host for human organs. Think about like the ethical, just the questions that that raises. Like what if that being becomes aware of itself at some point, right? We're, we're messing with like crazy stuff. How about like that's kind of really far out there and they're not that close to doing it yet. They're messing around with it. Right now, there's this AI technology called deep fake. And if, if you want to check this out on your own, go Google Jordan Peele, Barack Obama. The language is a little colorful, I will just warn you up front, but it's an example of what I'm talking about. It's AI technology that will allow you to take, take video of myself, say whatever I want to say, and then overlay it with the president. And then it, it will look like the president is saying what I'm, like what I want him to say, like I'm a ventral, and it's really, really good. I mean, think about that, that we could make it look like anything happened at anywhere, at any point in time, right? We get a, a news anchor and we make him say what we want to say. The, the ethical ramifications of that stuff are, are just crazy. So you couple that with the pace of life and, and tragedy and even the everyday stuff, the decisions where things are going good. Everything that we do with that, how we respond to that stuff, it's shaped by what's called a worldview, right? A worldview, whether you, we all have one, whether we recognize it or not. I'm waiting for the definition to come up, there you go. A worldview is a set of assumptions that make up your personal outlook on the nature of the world and how to live in that world. It is your set of beliefs about the most important issues in life. Ravi Zacharias says that there are four elements that should go into, that your worldview should answer. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. So the filter through which you view everything, good, bad, indifferent, technology, relationships, everything goes through this worldview. 
the most important part of a worldview is what it says or what it does not say about God. And so for the next several weeks here at Crossroads, we are gonna be wrestling with what A.W. Tozer, Mark Clark quoted him, really smart theologian from a while ago, called the problem of God. If the God of the Bible is everything that the Bible says he is, then it, figuring out what we believe about him is the single most important thing that we can do with our time, our efforts, our energy, with, with our life. So that's what we're gonna be looking at across the next several weeks. Um, before we even get to does God exist, this morning we're gonna be tackling the idea of, well, we're like a pretty advanced people now. Hasn't science kind of, like we don't need God anymore? Aren't we smarter than that? So that's, that's the issue we're gonna, we're gonna tackle this morning. And I would, I would suggest to you that the further that you press into science and that the further you press into the Bible, if you do both of those things with intellectual integrity and honesty, they will lead you closer to the God of the Bible. Our big idea for this morning is this, is that Christianity is open and, and sorry, is open to and encourages honest thought and questions. Honest thought and questions will lead you closer to Christianity, right? We don't have to check our brains at the door to be a follower of Jesus. Some of us may be sitting here thinking this morning, yeah, this is like, this is really on my heart and mind. The, the idea that I have friends around me, even I have questions about like, what do we do with science and all the advancements? Um, and others are like, well, is this really even, even an issue? So it gets, it's gotten a lot of traction for what I would suggest to you are three different reasons. Revisionist history, like we look back at things and we kind of shape it to the way we want it to be. Institutional power struggles and men on a mission. So revisionist history, let's look at it this way. Um, there are men like uh, the scientist Bruno and the scientist Copernicus, right? Bruno um, was executed by the church, right? So we'll, we'll get to the horrible hypocrisy of the church in a couple weeks and try to deal with that mess. But he was not, he was not tried, he was not persecuted, he was not executed for his scientific work. He was executed for his beliefs on another Christian ideal or doctrine on, around the Trinity. Copernicus was not, um, he was not persecuted at all. He kind of gets thrown in there with these guys because he was one of the ones that promoted a heliocentric view of the universe, that the sun stayed put in the middle and everything else kind of revolved around that. The church left him alone. That's just made up that he was involved in any kind of persecution. And we come to Galileo. Galileo actually was detained and questioned by the church. He was under house arrest. He wasn't in a dungeon. He wasn't tortured. He was in a bishop's palace. They questioned him. They released him. And he went on to publish further scientific works after he was detained and questioned by, um, by the church. There was, there was no dispute right, between the church and science back then. People look back in history and who want to create this division will, will point to those things and will highlight those things. The idea of uh, institutional power struggles I'm going to quote from a bunch of people who are way smarter than I am this morning to kind of help us get our brains around this stuff. 
The conflict model of relationship of science to religion was a deliberate exaggeration used by both scientists and educational leaders at the end of the 19th century to undermine the church's control of their institutions and increase their own cultural power. The conflict model of relationship between science and faith was not so much an intellectual necessity, but rather particular cultural strategy. Right, let's just focus on that last piece. Not as so much an intellectual necessity, but a cultural strategy. It means the facts did not support there being this division between faith and science, between God and science. The folks who ran education, folks who ran science, it behooved them, it furthered their cause, it helped them accumulate power to cause this division, to try to pull that power from the church, which is where it resided. The, the last thing in terms of how this idea of, of uh, the historical idea of faith and science being in conflict comes from men on a mission. Uh, if any of you are readers of magazines like Wired or um, you watch the History Channel or, science or any of those things, you may have heard of a guy named Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is what I would describe as a fundamentalist atheist. He's really, really outspoken about his beliefs that, um, that there is no God, that the cause of everything is random chance, and that if something cannot be um, proven, or if there's not a material cause for something, then it's not real. And what, so what's really, really interesting about men like Dawkins is that they live and breathe and die by the scientific method. The scientific method cannot be verified by their own philosophy. They cannot take their own standards and apply it to themselves. Therefore, they have a faith position. Richard Dawkins, in other writings, has, has equated faith with mental illness. He has a faith position. We, um, we all have a, a faith position. This is a quote from Dawkins. You cannot be an intelligent scientific thinker and still hold religious beliefs. It's either one or the other. So his, his kind of own philosophy unravels, unravels on itself. And I just, what I, one of the things I want us to do over the course of the next couple of weeks is that we would figure out what our faith position is. I'm, I'm telling you, whether you recognize it or not, as nicely as I can, that you do, you do have a faith position. There are things in your life that you cannot cannot prove, that you trust, that you act upon, that you act upon in faith. And what I'm encouraging you to do is to identify those things and see if they're valid and to see if they will point you in the direction of, of truth. All right. So I want to take a look at a few verses that will help us look from the, the biblical side, the, the Christian perspective of there not being any sort of division between the idea of faith and science. The first one is, is Psalm 19, verses one and two. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. The words declare and proclaim in the original language are like the heavens are shouting. They're trying to get our attention. What are they trying to get? They're like, please look at us. Look at us and you will know the truth. The more you look into us, the more you research us, knowledge, right? The more knowledge you will accumulate. God didn't just do all that to look pretty. 
He created that to point to himself so we would look at it in amazement, so we would look at it and begin to be able to figure out pieces of him. And keeping in mind as we go through all of this that he is so big that we're never going to be able to, and it's a faith position, right? I'm never going to be able to say to you, X plus Y equals the existence of God. Our faith is not a linear thing, right? Our faith is the hope in things not seen. Declare, proclaim knowledge. The heavens are shouting at us. That's Old Testament. New Testament. For since the creation of, of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Understood from what has been made. Again, it's an invitation from God. Um, the gentleman who wrote this, his name is Paul, and a lot of, he was writing with the, um, the he was writing to the church in Rome, but there was a heavy influence of, of Stoic philosophy that affected everybody who was reading this and, and, the church, and the church in Rome. Even Stoic philosophers in antiquity would look at creation and they would, they would say, yeah, we can see the fingerprints of the divine in that. Paul's trying to reach out to them like, yes, you're right. Look at it. God put it there so we would know, that we would, understood, that we would understand from, from what has been made. Old Testament, New Testament. I'm going to read you a story from um, the book of John, and I'm asking us to jump forward a little bit. This story happens after Jesus' death and resurrection, and it's an interaction that many of us are familiar with if you have a church background between um, Jesus and the disciples and, and Thomas. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So Jesus appeared. Disciples were all gathered together after Jesus had been crucified, and Jesus shows up in this room where they're hanging out trying to figure out what to do next. Thomas was not with them. So their disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. So nobody, I, I don't know if they went and told Jesus that we don't, doesn't look like they interacted. So Thomas's mind has got to be pretty blown already that, right, that Jesus knew that he was questioning, like he wanted to see some proof. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. So Jesus had been uh, nailed to the cross through his, through his hands, and he had been finally put to death with a, a spear shot to, to his side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the most important thing, if you leave with, with nothing else this morning, I want you to take this interaction between Jesus and Thomas with you and know that Jesus is okay with your questions. He's big enough to handle whatever question you might have about him and his existence and how he works and the things that he asks us to do and the things he asks us not to do. Thomas, I mean, in our terms, we, Thomas was just a, like a, a hardcore skeptic. Maybe, depending on your perspective, maybe Thomas was just a realist. He wanted, he wanted some, some proof. He wanted to see somebody comes back from the dead. That doesn't happen every day. Um, 
there, there is nothing wrong with acknowledging and confessing our lack of knowledge about something. We come before Jesus and we ask a question like that. Of, we say, Jesus, we're struggling with this. I really don't understand how this works. Please help me. Point me in the right direction. Right? Through reading the Bible, through having conversations with other people who have been walking with Jesus for a while, doing your own research. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. One more time. Ready? It's okay to ask questions. All right. That's kind of the, the Christian perspective. God wants us to investigate what he's done. He wants us to understand as much as our little human minds can understand how he did it. He, it's okay for us to ask questions. How about from the science side of things? Doesn't science push us away from God? Over the course of the last century, there were several significant discoveries that pushed us closer to the existence of the God of the Bible, of believing that, of having of material things to look at that. The universe has a beginning and the fine-tuning of the universe. So we've all heard of the Hubble telescope, this guy Ed Hubble who invented the Hubble telescope. He made, he made a discovery that the universe was expanding, and as it was expanding, it was actually expanding at a slower rate over the course of time. That's significant because up until he made that discovery, science thought that the universe had always existed. And they were able to put together the fact that the universe is expanding and decelerating was the fact that it had a beginning point, that it had to start somewhere. This drift had a cause. Genesis 1.1 would tell us that the cause is God. In the beginning, God created. There had to be something outside of the universe to cause it. There had to be an eternal, uncaused cause. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But the fact that our science is looking at the world around us and pointing to the fact that there had to be something that, that started everything, that there had to be something in existence before that. The fine-tuning of the universe. All, all of science is founded upon the laws that hold the universe together, the systems that hold the universe together, right? Whether we look up at the sky and we think about the tilt of the earth and the distance from the sun or the human body or the seasons, all of that points to the fact that random chance could not have created this. People who study numbers and, and calculate out um, likelihood of things draw this comparison. The, the likelihood of the universe just happening to be created in such a way that life could be sustained would be the same thing as a tornado blowing through a junkyard and perfectly assembling a 747. It's, it's the odds like they're outrageous. I'm so thankful that there are people smarter than me that can put the math together and, and do things like that. Universe has a beginning. God is the uncaused cause outside of the universe. God constructed the universe in such a way that it would be held together and that over the course of time, it's like this little breadcrumb trail for us that is leading us closer to him. 
Christianity is pointing to science, saying it's okay. The further we get along in science, science is showing us that the God of the Bible is there. There are still kind of two, I'm sure there are more, um, but there are two what I would call bigger pieces, still questions that we, we have in mind. And I'm going to push pause for a second. These topics that we're covering are so big, and I'm trying to, you know, throughout the series, we're trying to cover so much ground. I know I'm going to miss stuff. I know there's a really good chance I could create more questions than I answer. So on the back table back there, there are these cards, right? And if you, if something I say or any of the other people who are teaching over the course of the next eight weeks, if there's something we say that raises a question, write it down. And at the end of the series, we're going to do another, the, the teaching time for that last service of the series, we're, we're just going to try to address some of the questions that we, we raise over the course of this eight or nine weeks. Does that make sense? So they're on the back table. If you need it, you can grab one on the way out. There are ten pens back there and stuff. Okay. Two, two things that still kind of remain that, um, and especially if you are a student, like sophomore, I, I took biology when I was a sophomore. I don't know when it's, it's taught now. Um, but the idea of evolution and the idea of miracles are still issues that, um, that can cause stress, angst, I guess, for lack of a better word. So let's look at evolution first. Um, there's a gentleman named Cliff Connectly. He Sometimes if you watch Channel 8, like local, he does a give me an answer. He goes to college campuses and he'll just engage kids on college campuses and questions and questions like this. And he put some of his thoughts into a book. He said this about evolution. Evolution as an explanation of the origin of life is not a proven fact. It is a philosophy, a theory. But evolution as a description of certain natural processes in nature has much evidence supporting it. So let's take that, the first part. It's not a proven fact, it's a philosophy, a theory. Like many theories, it has difficulties. It has holes in it. It gets taught as fact, like evolution, it just that's it. There's, there's, no other, there's no other explanation for the creation of life. And in reality, the creation, how everything began, origin, is one of the biggest problems for evolution. Evolution does not have an answer for the creation, for the original creation of, of life. Another significant issue with the theory of evolution is the gaps in the fossil record. There are species and animals and, um, and beings that just appear over the course of time in the fossil record. With, you can't trace them back. According to the theory of evolution, things just change slightly and adapt and adjust over the course of time to ensure the survival of that species. There are gaps, significant gaps, in, in the fossil record. And the last one is one I had to wrestle with for a while. Um, so I'm going to mention it, and then for you guys up to go talk to your friend Google and find out more. Um, Google's not necessarily the best source for that, but the idea of, of irreducible, irreducible complexity. There are parts of the human body that cannot be accounted for by the process of evolution. There, if you take them away, the, the system ceases to function and there's not a, a, a record that we can trace. There's arguments about whether the human eye is, a, is an, a, a, an example of irreducible, irreducible complexity. There's 
parts within the cells within us called flagellum. There's a very specific flagellum that scientists argue. You know, if Google Michael Behe, B-E-H-E, um, this, this was his idea. Talk about the specific flagellum that uh, support the idea of irreducible complexity. Because there's no trail, it pushes evolution further, further aside. That being said, it doesn't discredit it altogether, right? There are gaps in it, there are, there are holes in it. Um, Tim Keller in this book, Cliff Connectly, other really smart guys will, will tell you that they think that God used evolution, that evolution is the work of God in different ways and shapes and forms, not as a philosophy, not as a worldview, but as a description of certain natural processes that happen in nature in conjunction with the miraculous creative act. That was like a lot in a very short amount of time. Write your questions down. We'll do the best we can to, to, to get back to them. The other thing I wanted to take a few minutes and look at is this idea of miracles. The linchpin of the Christian faith is the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's something that we, we have to we have to deal with. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to another um, thinker. To rule out even asking questions about divine activity is not neutral, but an act of cultural hegemony. I had to look up hegemony too. I'm going to explain it in a second. Um, it basically means that people who are in power... Um, so think of scientists sitting on the boards and faculties of universities and Ivy Leagues and big-time research centers. They come to their work with a predetermined mindset that all causes must be natural. Supernatural causes don't exist, therefore they don't exist. That's their, that's their rationale. And this statement is just saying that it's not um, just ruling it out beforehand. It doesn't, doesn't work. So there's the pressure from science just to, just to say that, to, just to, to squash that. Then there's the idea of our, our Western mindset. And this is from, from Tim Keller's book. Miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming, sorry, typo, is coming. So we look at the world and we see miracles as the suspension of the natural order of things. Right, the fact that Jesus um, fed 5,000, right, the fact that he healed leprosy, the fact that he rose from the dead. The, in our minds, in the Western world, that's the suspension of the natural order. In the biblical worldview, that's the restoration of the natural order. When God created the world, there was no sickness, there was no hunger, and there was no death. Jesus is, is giving us a glimpse of what life is going to be like. He beat death when he rose from the grave, and he told us that he's coming back. And when he comes back, death, and sickness, and hunger, all that stuff is going to be gone. 
So we had to fight really hard from the, the overwhelming Western mindset and the powers that be that would try to suggest to us that miracles don't exist because they don't exist. And we gotta push, we gotta push through that. So I started with this. I started with the idea that we don't have to check our brains at the door to be a Christian, to love Jesus and follow Jesus. Pick up a book by Ravi Zacharias. Pick up a book by Dallas Willard. I have to read like par Dallas Willard paragraphs like six and seven times to just to try to get my brain around the, he's a Christian philosopher, uh, around what, what he's saying. And then by like time number 10, I'm like, I think I got it. And I still have to go read it a few more. It's, it's not uh, an act of like intellectual suicide. You're not, you're not checking your brain at the door. We are encouraged by scripture itself to pursue the things that cause us questions. Science is pushing us closer to the existence of God. One more quote. Observational cosmologist. What a great title that is, right? He's an observational cosmologist. It means he doesn't probably have to produce much of anything. He just gets the... It is my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than be, can be accounted for by my science. I love that. Intellectual honesty. Right, one of the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 9, 10, says the Lord does not forsake those who seek them. If you pursue God with honesty and with intellectual integrity, he will reveal himself to you. And that's whether you are a longtime believer of Jesus or you are a hardcore devout skeptic. If you honestly pursue the God of the Bible, he will reveal himself to you. And I just bring us back to our big idea for this morning. Christianity is open to and encourages honest thoughts and questions. Honest thoughts and questions will lead you closer to Christianity. I'm going to call the band back up while I'm praying. We're going to finish up with a few more songs. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that um, you are big enough to handle our questions. I thank you that you uh, provided men like Tim Keller and Mark Clark who would do all this research and write these books that would help point to you, that would help answer our questions. I thank you that you surround us with people who love you and who care about us, who are willing, us to, have, who are willing to have conversations about what it means to, um, to follow you. God, give us the courage to ask those questions. Give us the, the courage and the energy to do, to do the research. We thank you for the gift of creation that exists all around us, that reminds us daily, minute by minute, that you are who you say you are. And the more we check it out, the more we investigate, the more you reveal yourself to us. Thank you, and we love you. Amen.